Hi everyone, thank you for listening and welcome back to the Primary Healthcare Development Pre-Reg Pharmacy Podcast. I think it's because it's been such an eventful month what with the pre-reg results and the exam and all that sort of thing that it actually feels like it's been such a long time and not just a month. But I am still Sana and this month uh, our topic is blood and nutrition. These chapters from personal experience and what I've heard from others are the chapters that are highly neglected I think it's just because they're not weighted so heavily in the exam but like I said in multiple episodes in the past the smaller weighted sorry the lighter weighted topics actually have loads of easy points that you can just pick up and it's just not worth losing them and like I said always aim for 100% because if you're aiming for like a pass mark it's easier to lose out on what you deserve, which is a pass. So let's go through these topics. And I know I say this every week, as many of you have pointed out, but nutrition is something that I love so much. I think it's so interesting because maintaining good nutrition can actually prevent a lot of quite acute illnesses and exacerbations, like I'll show you. And obviously blood in general, I would recommend you guys to definitely go through it even after you've passed your pre-reg exams before you go into any role make sure you understand how to interpret interpret blood results it's so important and as all the roles like community pharmacist roles gp pharmacist roles even hospital pharmacist roles are getting more and more uh, i don't like the word clinical because we're all clinical but as uh, as the role of the pharmacist is becoming more and more sort of close to a prescriber and we're prescribing so much earlier on you're gonna need to know all this stuff you're gonna need to know how to diagnose things you're gonna need to know and uh, be able to predict drug treatments based off blood results so definitely definitely listen to this one with very aware ears let's get on it let's start with blood because it is it's it's not really a small topic but i think you'll be very familiar with it so we'll start with something a bit more precise that's iron deficiency anemia if you look in the bnf and the treatment summaries there's loads of different types of anemia so we'll go through the the more commonly seen ones in practice and in the exam because we have to go through the testable stuff Iron deficiency anemia, if your patient is actually in a deficiency state, it's vital to exclude any underlying causes of anemia before starting them on treatment. Remember stuff like red flags, they're not just for the pre-reg pharmacist or the pro-reg pharmacist or the pharmacist in community pharmacies. Red flags, they should be manifesting everywhere for you. You shouldn't just forget about them if you move into a different sector. Stuff like GI bleeds, GI cancers, and weight loss, all of that sort of stuff can relate to anemia quite closely. And anemia is actually a really early indicator of a lot, a lot of illnesses down the line. So keep your eyes and ears peeled, guys, especially on people on their wards like um, acute medicines units. I used to work on one of them and I loved it. And I'm sure whoever's done a rotation in MAU will know you just see so many people who've got iron deficiency anemia or they've got iron deficiency associated with or secondary to another cause so do keep your eyes and ears peeled do remember what all your red flags are you can also apply uh, uh, the paul rutter book the the brilliant book on community pharmacy in practice all those red flags they are all applicable to any sector if your patient presents with something and they're saying that they're losing weight 
they feel fatigued and they know that the recent blood results have been uh, have been showing that they've got iron deficiency anemia maybe you should flag something up to the practitioners if you feel it's appropriate they don't just disappear when you when you come out of community pharmacy Leading on from that, some people may have conditions that increase the risk of them developing anemia, conditions like pregnancy, having a gastrectomy, um, menorrhagia, that, and uh, in these patients, it might actually be pertinent to supply iron prophylaxis in the form of like parasulfate, stuff like that. So you don't only have to treat the cause, but you can get your patient in a state where they're prevented against getting anemia in the first place. Everybody who's listening to this podcast will know whether they've even set foot in a pharmacy or not by now that there's quite a lot of iron salts available. There's ferrous gluconate, ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate. However, there's not actually much difference in the efficacy of the absorption between of the iron between the salts. So we actually make the decisions based on effects and cost. However, if you do look in the treatment summary in the BNF, it's got a brilliant little table and it shows you the iron content for each salt. So if someone's got got a bit more of a deficiency than someone else it might be a little bit wiser to go for a salt that has more elemental iron in it these kind of things are very testable especially in the calculations bits of the exams so do do understand this table have a look and obviously join our telegram group where i will be posting some calculations questions questions based on this table precisely If you work in a hospital pharmacy department, you might have seen stuff like Venifer and Monifer, which are brands of iron infusion. They are so interesting to work with and it works so well for the patients uh, who have it for iron deficiency anemia. However, it's got quite a serious side effect profile, so it's reserved for those who can't tolerate oral iron or if they're not taking it reliably. I would suggest having a look at the summaries of product characteristics for these sorts of medications just to get your head around them because they are commonly tested on in the gphc exam they are, they're a lot of fun actually to work with once you get your head around the dosing and that's what you'll probably be tested on because they've got max doses they've got they refer to the current hemoglobin level the target hemoglobin level patient's weight all sorts of things and uh, a competent day one pharmacist will know how to dose one of these you might you might never see in in your whole career after this they're not very rare but you have to be in a particular specialty i use it a lot in um, oncology and i used it a lot when i was on the elderly wards when i worked for a bigger hospital but the the dosing of these sort of iron infusions they build up loads of skills like information extraction, problem solving, calculations, and how to use reference material. It's very likely that, likely that something like this would be part of a resource pack in the exam. So I highly suggest having a look, look at it. And if you don't have a look at it, don't worry, it's gonna be a question in the Telegram group anyway. Moving on to megaloblastic anemia, those who have already researched this topic or have worked in community or GP surgeries or in the hospital is quite commonly seen anemia and it's caused by one of two deficiencies, that's vitamin B12 or folate. Pernicious anemia manifests when patients have autoimmune gastritis and that results in a lack of gastric intrinsic factor. That causes a malabsorption of vitamin B12, so obviously that's how that comes about. 
Also, if you've got a patient who has undergone a total gastrectomy or if they're already showing signs and symptoms and levels of vitamin B12 malabsorption, and if they've even had a partial gastrectomy, they are eligible for prophylactic, prophylactic B12. Remember the distinctive dosage regimen of hydroxycobalamin, which, as the BNF will show you, has completely replaced cyanocobalamin. Rest in peace, I miss dispensing that. Uh, um, one milligram three times a week for two weeks. And then the maintenance dose, that depends on the indication. Have a look at the clinical knowledge summary guideline for anemia B12 and folate deficiency. It's a brilliantly clear guideline. You will understand it straight away. It's bullet pointed perfectly. Highly, highly recommend it. Please go to it. And obviously, if the patient has folate deficiency anemia, daily folic acid su supplements for around four months is enough to get the levels up. Remember, methotrexate is basically the opposite of folic acid in terms of mechanism of action. And folic acid is therefore taken all the days of the week except for methotrexate days, and that counteracts the side effects that the methotrexate can actually cause by the folate inhibition. And let's not also forget that folic acid is given to pregnant women in the first trimester and that prevents neural tube defects. Uh, there are also a certain demographic of women who are high, at higher risk of conceiving a child with neural tube defects, like if they take anti-epileptic medication, if they're diabetic, if they've got sickle cell disease. There's a few examples in the BNF, actual, the actual monograph, very interesting, and the treatment summary before that, and they're going to have the higher dose of the 5 milligrams OD. Epoetians are very interesting, very expensive drugs to treat anemia associated with erythropoietin deficiency in chronic renal failure. You won't see loads of these in practice, but it's very important to be aware of them because once again, they are quite testable. It, it's one of those sorts of drugs in the dosage regime that it looks really complicated. When you look at the monograph, it's so simple to understand. If you don't believe me, pause right now, have a look at the monograph and the SPC. You're welcome. One of the most important bits of the blood chapter is neutropenia, which is defined as neutrophils less than 1.5 billion cells per liter. Neutropenia is a risk factor for the development of infection and sepsis and is a really big concern in patients who are undergoing chemotherapy most of the time. GCSF, is, like filgrastim, is rooted in parts of loads of regimens and that keeps the neutrophils up when they're down or it maintains them whilst they're on chemotherapy to prevent them going down. It is a really serious concern because once they drop past a certain range, you have to not have your chemotherapy, which obviously causes the patient distress and can hinder um, and can promote disease progression, which is a horrible, horrible idea. So that's how important this sort of stuff is. Once again, it's one of those things that not everyone will see loads of in their career. You probably will definitely see it once or twice. It's also one of those things like the darbopoietin, epoietin sort of thing. It looks really complicated, but it's so simple once you have a look at the dosage regimen. So pause once again, and a little bit, or a little bit of homework rather, have a look at either the SPC or the BNF monograph. And don't worry, another question on these will be popping up in the Telegram group. So if you don't have a look at it now, you can have a look at it with me later in the weeks. Let's move on to nutrition. And the first bit I'm going to talk about is calcium imbalance. My recommendation for this 
is to try and find some local guidance. If you are doing your placement in a GP surgery or in hospital, you'll have access to a plethora of concise guidelines on what to do when your patient develops hypo or hypercalcemia at various degrees of severity. It's actually really simple to sort out and in terms of like how, how much intervention a pharmacist has to put in. And obviously it's not that simple in as in sharing guidelines but take some notes understand how how they work and all the different formulations that you have at hand and then work together share guidance if you're able to or if you're not get together speak to each other about this have some groups join the telegram group talk to us about calcium imbalance and all the other imbalances it's really important and really actually very 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 beneficial if you get together and share what you've got because resources some some places have brilliant resources on some topics and some places don't have such good ones so if you get together you're only stronger IV nutrition this is another topic that looks scary but it isn't really this is kind of like the theme of this episode isn't it so TPN or supplemental parenteral nutrition is to replace the nutrients that someone should be getting by food and drink but they might not be able to do to being undernourished because of chemotherapy because of burns because of um disorders of the gut that cause uh, abnormal absorption long-term parental nutrition is a risk factor for infection however it's a breeding ground for bacteria because imagine you got room temperature tasty feed it's literally perfect for bacteria to grow also, in terms of side effects, if it's given long term, it can uh, it's, as it's given IV, you can develop gallstones and abnormal LFTs. People aren't usually on it for so long, but there are obviously going to be some people who are on it for 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 a pretty long time. So we just need to monitor, monitor their bloods. TPN is the kind of thing that you see in resource packs in the exam, so don't worry too much about it. If you have a chance. Have a word with your local TPN pharmacist or ICU pharmacist or like neonatal pharmacist. They will show you how big a dispensing label for a TPN bag is. They are literally like, it's like a, it's like an A5 sheet of paper with the tiniest writing on it, with all the contents of it, the potassium, the how much energy you get, all that sort of stuff. And it's just so interesting to see how much they know. You do not need to know it in that much detail, but you just need to know the, the general principles. Have a look once again in the BNF. Understand what you're supposed to be looking out for, like the signs of infection, monitoring the bloods, and just get an idea of not even what's in the bags so much, but what to keep an eye out for. It's really interesting and it's testable. And remember that aseptic technique that we had talked but that we had talked about a few episodes ago the spraying and the wiping and why it's important to keep things clean that is essential when you're making up tpn i used to watch pharmacists because obviously i wasn't authorized as a pre-reg pharmacist but we used to watch pharmacists and technicians make up the bags in hospitals so if you have a chance even if you haven't got a rotation planned or you're not allowed to do a lot of stuff just go and have a look people are usually very kind and welcoming into aseptic like tech services labs it's very cool and i think it's one of those things that make you appreciate the profession and the role of the pharmacist so much more especially stuff like this that happens completely behind the scenes nobody knows how much work goes into it until you're actually part of it magnesium 
This is an essential part of enzymes, especially the ones involved in energy generation. And the treatment summary for magnesium imbalance is a little bit, a little bit confusing because it has so much information on it. So take it slow. And remember the magic of local guidance. I, when I did my pre-reg exam, I was not actually in hospital, so I had to remember a lot of stuff. <clears throat> and I regret that I did not do what I'm telling you to do now. Take your notes when you're in hospital. It doesn't matter if you're in your first year, second year, third year. Whenever you've got some guidance, use it. When I was in community pharmacy, if, I, if my roles had been swapped, I would have taken loads more notes on like OTC, medication, stuff like that, because I would have lost it if I was in hospital or not remembered so much of it in practice. Wherever you are, take loads of notes, N maybe not at the time, get yourself stuck in and then go home, reflect constantly. That's why CPT is so important. You might as well learn it now. <laughs> Patients who have stomas or a fistula are the ones who commonly present with hypomagnesemia. We have a lot of hypomagnesemia on, uh, on chemotherapy units as well, so it's interesting because as a pre-reg, I didn't really know so much about it. I just knew these sort of guidelines, the you know the treatment summaries and local guidance that we had, but now I'm actually working with it. I'm like, oh yeah, I could have used this about, what, four years ago? Four years ago. Anyway. Hypomagnesemia is quite important because it can cause hypo everything else, potassium, calcium, sodium, magnesium itself comes in sachets, uh, you'd remember magnesium aspartate that forms the basis of most local protocols but there are some tablet forms available as well, be careful because they might just pop you in a little, a little monograph or a little uh, treatment summary in, in a resource pack and there are actually some formulations i think it's the magnesium glycerol phosphate that is unlicensed so remember the differences between licensing and why it's important to remember them So, sort of last, vitamins. The fat-soluble ones are easy to remember because they spell Cade. Wherever you go, people will spend, spell some random noises like, I don't, I don't even know. Uh, but like, I think one of the doctors I work with actually said something like ECAD or something. I was like, how is that easy? But Cade, vitamins K, A, D and E are all fat-soluble and the rest are water-soluble. The vitamin B group is important because these are the ones that are involved in so many essential pathways, including cell regeneration. You'll remember that we give pyridoxine, which is vitamin B6, to patients who have isoniazid, and Pabrinex, which contains loads of different kinds of vitamins B, vitamin Bs. Have a look at the ingredients. I was surprised to see how many vitamin Bs there are in there. And obviously, Pabrinex is used to treat Wernix encephalopathy and Korsakoff's psychosis if you've worked on a gastrointestinal ward or if you've seen some discharge letters from patients who have been discharged from those kinds of wards, you'll see that most people who are suffering from certain conditions have undergone some sort of therapy with Pabrinex and then drop down to something like thiamine or vitamin B. Vitamin C deficiency causes the pirate's disease and that is scurvy but obviously milder forms of deficiency can be found in elderly patients and vitamin D is special because the formulation you give to your patients depends on so much including their renal function. Simple ergo or cholecalciferol can be given to patients, most of the patients who have a vitamin D deficiency but those who've got renal impairment they actually lack the mechanism which hydroxylates vitamin D to its active form so we have to give them alpha-calcitol uh, alpha or calcitriol. 
there are lots of diagrams out there, very easy to understand um, in understanding this mechanism. If you need any help with it, just drop us a message at, uh, on Telegram or on email or any of our other platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. We're always here to help. And it's important that you get this one because it's the kind of thing that's in almost every exam. And it's the kind of thing that you need to understand when you're in practice because people will have, like all of us have dispensed, ergocalciferol, all of us have dispensed cholecalciferol, all of us have dispensed uh, alpha-calcidol and calcitriol. Calcitriol not so much but I have definitely dispensed it and I know everybody has dispensed it as well in community and in hospital and you've seen it on discharge letters or treatment summaries in GP surgeries so it's important to know why you're supplying the patients with these drugs because they might not always be suitable. Remember that Vitamin K, also known as phytomenodione, which I think is such a cool, it's such a beautiful name, isn't it? It's the antidote to warfarin overdose and it's necessary for the production of blood clotting factors. With vitamins, I would advise to look at the signs and symptoms of hypos and hypers for each and to improve your personal practice, learn where to find each of these vitamins in your diet because guaranteed you're gonna be asked more than anything where do I find vitamin C? Where do I find vitamin A? Where do I find vitamin K? How about vitamin B? What happens if you don't have enough? So, learn them. You might think that this is not a pharmacist's job, but of course it is. We, we supply them, we respond to deficiencies and hypers, and we need to know what we're giving, why we're giving it, and how to prevent it from going wrong ever again. So, it's kind of a blessing really to be a healthcare professional in the family because it just forces you to learn so much. So enjoy learning about blood and nutrition. I think it's probably one of the two of the, they're probably two of the most interesting topics because they're so close to home. Literally they're about your nutrition, your diet, your body and your blood. So, and when you go into practice, hopefully after, re after hearing this and reading the treatment summaries and the extra liter literature that I've been talking about, it will fascinate you so much more as it totally should. I can't believe that like, one drop of blood had so much magic in it. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey through the blood system and nutrition and if you need any help, advice, if you need any encouragement, we're always here. Join us in our telegram groups where we get exclusive content like quizzes and um, and all of the Primary HD team and daily talks about anything that you need. It's a very supportive environment. All of us are very supportive, I feel. And join us on Instagram for quizzes there as well. Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I hope you have a lovely month and we'll speak to you next month. I've been Sana. See you later.